History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. Episode 80, On the March. Last time, we set up the story of Cyrus the Younger as he made plans to declare himself King Cyrus III. Through a series of fabricated revolts, quiet under-the-table deals, malicious rumors, and open overtures to Sparta, Cyrus assembled an army of Greek mercenaries and local levies from his domain as Keranos in Anatolia. From 404 to 401 BC, he played the game. He presented himself as a good and loyal brother to Artaxerxes II, while Cyrus and their mother Parasatis secured the loyalty of important nobles and made plans for open warfare for the throne. With all of these pieces in place, Cyrus made his move in 401. He called up all of his troops to meet at Sardis, with the exception of a small Spartan infantry force and his fleet, which waited for orders at Ephesus, alongside Cyrus's own navy built up from the Greek cities of Ionia. Cyrus and Artaxerxes had both been holding court, performing royal ceremonies, and endearing themselves to as many people as possible, noble and commoner alike. Even as Cyrus's forces gathered and his own mother plotted against him, Artaxerxes remained in the dark. But that couldn't last forever. The rumors that Cyrus would be a better king had been growing for years, and Artaxerxes had his own loyalists in Anatolia. Of all the potential opposition in Cyrus's own territory, nobody was more motivated to act against him than Tissaphernes, who still rankled under the dual slights of first losing his satrapy to a 16-year-old boy, and then losing his coastal territory to that same insolent child four years later. Cyrus had recruited a large number of his Greek mercenaries under the pretense of going to war with Tissaphernes anyway, but the governor of Caria had assessed the situation from a distance and quickly recognized that the army at Sardis was far, far larger than necessary for any of the pretenses Cyrus had fabricated. So Tissaphernes gathered up 500 horsemen, a force just large enough to combat a detachment sent after him, and raced towards Persia. Abetted by the logistical miracle of the Persian royal road, he soon reached Artaxerxes' court, probably still in residence at Susa for the winter, and warned the king that his brother was coming. A civil war had already begun, and Artaxerxes was caught unawares. There was no time to delay. Artaxerxes put out the word to his loyalists and vassals to send troops, and made plans to face his brother. The king was understandably furious, with not just his brother, but their shared mother as well. Parasatis's preference for her second son wasn't even an open secret. It was simply stated fact, and had been for a decade. Much like Cyrus, the Queen Mother had sworn to end all of her schemes against Artaxerxes after the coronation plot, 
and had violated those oaths. But Artaxerxes was hardly the only person at court angry with Parasadus. Plutarch, probably using made-up dialogue, though potentially a quote recorded by Theseus, presents Artaxerxes' wife, Statira, screaming at her mother-in-law, Where are your oaths now? And where is the begging you used to rescue a man who had plotted against his brother's life only to drag us into war and disaster? Cyrus's campaign for the throne drove the wedge between Parasadus and Statera even deeper, compounding on the simmering animosity left over from Statera's familial crimes against the Achaemenid house. Now, while we do have two eyewitnesses for these events, our information is heavily skewed towards Cyrus's side of the war, because that's where Xenophon was hanging out. Theseus's Persica has only survived in fragments of quotes, citations, and summaries in other works. His Indica, a short travel guide to whatever mythical version of India people told him about in Iran, is even less well-preserved. His original writing was just nothing special, and almost as soon as he published his works, everyone recognized that the parts he didn't witness or meet witnesses for were too fanciful to believe. So at some point in the Middle Ages, people just stopped making copies of Theseus. Xenophon, on the other hand, has been the gold standard of ancient Greek writing for centuries. The Anabasis, the history of this war that we're talking about, is still a standard introductory text for students learning ancient Greek today. So back to Sardis. I've been talking about how huge Cyrus's army was, but we haven't actually talked hard numbers yet. You'll get different numbers depending on where you look. The most recurring number in our sources is 13,000 Greek mercenaries. At least Diodorus Siculus says 14,000. It's possible that the exact count was about 13,000 at Sardis, plus the 700 Spartan infantry, who were still with the navy. If you comb through the first two books of the Anabasis, you'll get, according to Wikipedia and a little bit of Control-F, 11,100 heavy infantry hoplites, 2,500 light infantry peltasts, including archers, slingers, and just lightly armed people from Greece and Thrace, 1,000 Paphlagonian cavalry, 300 Greek cavalry, Cyrus's 600 Iranian bodyguards, also mounted on horseback, 20 scythed chariot teams, more on those later, and according to Xenophon, 100,000 infantry from Cyrus's territory. Of course, 100,000 was a gargantuan force for a full army assembled from the entire unified empire under Xerxes. So probably not accurate to Cyrus's army. What Xenophon is really trying to convey is that there were a ton of Anatolians, more than the whole Greek contingent, and a large number of merchants, families, and servants trailing behind them. Most of them don't factor into Xenophon's very pro-Greek story of the war, but the ballpark estimate is 30,000 fighting men, including all of the army's various divisions and units. Xenophon just seems to have multiplied Cyrus's total by 10 to work out Artaxerxes' numbers, which is even more ridiculous. 
From the surviving sources, we can say with some certainty that Xenophon had a larger force, pulled from the more loyal satrapies, and most scholars use a rough estimate of 40,000 total, with that extra 10,000 more or less proportionally divvied up between infantry and cavalry, plus 30 extra chariots. Cyrus wasn't sure when or where his brother would meet him, but he did know that it would take time for Artaxerxes' forces to gather. To try and mask his movements, he started moving from town to town in the area around Sardis immediately after the Persian New Year in March, with most of the army still unaware of their true purpose. As a participant, Xenophon provides precise details at every stage, but suffice to say, with 30,000 soldiers and accompanying camp followers, it was slow going. They covered just 7 miles a day, about 11 kilometers on average. And on top of that, Cyrus began by trying to maintain his cover of a war in Caria, so they marched south first instead of heading straight east. Even at the crawling pace, there were multiple stops in southern Lydia to wait on contingents of the army that were still arriving or had fallen behind for whatever reason. There were breaks for the men, breaks for the horses, breaks for Greek festivals, and breaks for King Cyrus to do some hunting and enjoy himself. By the time they were truly underway, some of the mercenaries were owed three months back pay. This was very out of character for the famously generous Cyrus, and Xenophon says he looked genuinely frustrated and worried about their pay during this time. The explanation for the payroll problems was probably fairly benign. At Cyrus's standard rate of four obols a day, 14,000 mercenaries and their commanders simply required a lot of hard currency, more than was practical to cart around with the already slow-moving army. Cyrus needed to requisition payments from treasuries along his route to keep the army solvent, and the soldiers were getting agitated faster than anticipated. He was used to the Spartan fleet that had been exhausted by Tissaphernes during the Peloponnesian War, and was just grateful to be paid at all. This time, the mercenaries had higher expectations and weren't willing to wait until they accrued enough back pay to be paid in higher denominations of coinage that were easy to transport. Around this time, there were also a few conflicts between the Greeks and the Anatolian and Iranian troops during military drills and market days, but they were largely ironed out by pointing out how bloody that conflict would be for both sides and how they were really here for common cause, even if they didn't all really know what the common cause was. But Cyrus was forced to call for financial assistance from the next treasury along their route, the city of Tarsus in Cilicia. Even after 150 years of Achaemenid rule, Cilicia was still a semi-independent vassal kingdom in southern Anatolia. Their rulers had always played nice with the Persians and endeared themselves as a navy base. Their king, Cyanesis III, was apparently ignorant of Cyrus's plans and was happy to continue this tradition. He sent his queen, Epioxa, to meet Cyrus with the funds he requested. 
Cyrus promptly distributed all of the back pay, plus a full month's advance salary to his mercenaries. He was also rumored to have started an affair with the Cilician Queen, who remained with the army as it pressed eastward to inland Anatolia. Before long, they reached Laconia and Pisidia, the regions that were actually in open rebellion against Persian authority, and Cyrus deployed his army for its stated purpose. The Pisidian revolt was defeated quickly, and the army was allowed to plunder the cities of Laconia for war booty and slaves. Because these were Greek soldiers, that's how they functioned. Once this stated goal was complete, Queen Epioxa decided to return home to the Cilician capital at Tarsus, along with the small complement of bodyguards that she traveled with. But Cyrus insisted that she take the Thessalian mercenaries and their commander, Menon, for added protection. During their journey through the treacherous passes of the Taurus Mountains, some 200 mercenaries went scouting and vanished. Afterward, Xenophon speculated that it could have been anything from a conflict with local villages to simply getting lost in the hills. Given the rumors about her affair with Cyrus, and the events that follow, I'd offer another theory. Epioxa was sent north to give Cyrus money, but also to act as a spy and report back to Cionesis III on what exactly Cyrus was doing. Cyrus may even have been aware of her true intentions because he waited until Epioxo left to initiate the next stage of his plan. As he moved beyond his stated targets in Pisidia, Cyrus executed some of his brother's observers in his entourage on the vague accusation of treason. In a sense, that was true, but it was treason against Cyrus by way of loyalty to Artaxerxes. With Cyrus's insistence that she take his troops with her, Epioxa may have arranged for a few accidents along the way. Despite these losses, Menon and the bulk of his forces arrived in lowland Cilicia five days ahead of Cyrus, traveling by a different route than the main army. As Cyrus and the larger force approached the Taurus Mountains, King Cionesis had actually summoned the Cilician army to guard the only suitable pass for Cyrus's forces to cross the mountain range. Still keeping his motivation a secret, Cyrus was hesitant to attack a loyal vassal outright, but he was saved from the decision because a report reached Cionesis that Menon's Greeks were already in the lowlands. He raced back to his capital, and the people of Tarsus retreated to a nearby castle, anticipating an attack from Cyrus. Think a sort of Helm's Deep situation. Cionesis also sent one of his three sons with a small army to warn Artaxerxes of Cyrus's treason, apparently unaware that Tissaphernes had already done that. But Queen Epioxa was still outside the walls, and she helped broker a peace. Cyrus guaranteed Cionesis's personal safety and the safety of his people and territory so long as Cyrus's army was allowed to camp near Tarsus for a couple of weeks, and Cionesis gave Cyrus two companies of Cilician soldiers under the command of his remaining sons. Cionesis tentatively agreed, 
Cyrus lavished him with gifts the way a king would for a loyal vassal, and everyone calmed down until Cyrus tried to get the army moving again. This had the bizarre effect of putting sons and soldiers of the Cilician king on both sides of the war. By the time they were in Cilicia, the rank-and-file servants had gotten suspicious. Why were they marching further southeast now, if the rebellion was defeated? Cyrus, didn't you try to kill your brother? Oh gods, oh no! This is an open revolt! I didn't sign up to be a rebel! I didn't sign up to march halfway across the empire! And so, the soldiers refused to leave Tarsus. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As the overall commander of the Greek army, Clearchus concocted a plan with the would-be king. The Greek general swore that he wouldn't agree to follow Cyrus any further. Cyrus sent messengers to publicly beg for a meeting with the Spartan general, and Clearchus repeatedly refused. After several days of this farce, Clearchus gave an ominous speech to his men where he said that he would continue to refuse Cyrus if they wished, and that if they were finished here, they should start making plans to head home. But he finished by saying that Cyrus was a good friend when he was friendly, and a terrifying enemy if you were to upset him. Just look at the Athenians. It had the desired effect other Greek leaders independently started calling for Clearchus to go meet with Cyrus and figure out what was going on. Clearchus went to the meeting, probably had a good laugh and a couple of drinks, and came back with a slightly truer plan. He told his men that their target was Abracomus, son of Belesus, and the current satrap of Assyria. He was also one of Cyrus's personal rivals the Greeks were led to believe that he had encamped on the Euphrates River. They didn't totally buy this, but Clearchus promised they could debate it again if they got to the Euphrates and nobody was there. 
In all likelihood, Cyrus was just expecting his brother to make a stand near the river anyway. Cyrus stopped again at Issus, the easternmost port in Cilicia, and waited for his last round of troops from Greece. While they were encamped in Tarsus, Cyrus had sent orders back to Ephesus to direct the navy. The Ionians, under the command of Tomos the Egyptian, and the Spartan navy under Admiral Samios, were charged with patrolling the coast of Cilicia and making sure Cionesus didn't try to intervene in the war, and preventing the Loyalist fleet from making its way up the coast and interfering with Cyrus's supply lines. When the fleet arrived at Issus for one last meeting with Cyrus, they dropped off Kerasophus of Sparta and his 700 hoplites, the only full force in the army that knew exactly why they were doing this. They proceeded toward the Cilician Gates, a famously narrow pass surrounded by sheer cliffs with a river running right up the middle. It was treacherous ground for an army to be caught in, but the most direct and comfortable route from western Anatolia to Syria. Cyrus fully expected to face some resistance here. The Syrian side of the gate was supposed to be manned by staunch Artaxerxes loyalists under the command of the aforementioned Abracomus. As Cyrus left his territory with a massive army, there was only one valid interpretation, and he thought open warfare would start here. But Cyrus was wrong. They found the Syrian side of the pass deserted. Apparently, Tissaphernes' early warning, or a warning from Cionysus' son, had prompted Abracomus to gather up his forces and join the larger force massing in Mesopotamia rather than trying to halt Cyrus on his own. So Cyrus the Younger proceeded into northern Syria unimpeded. First they went south to the Phoenician port of Miriandus, where they resupplied and let the soldiers send money and trophies home. While there, a few of the Greek commanders deserted, either because they didn't want to get caught up in a civil war, or they felt like there was no glory in being subordinates to Clearchus in this massive army, when they thought they were going to lead a full army against Pisidian rebels. Most of the Greeks assumed Cyrus would hunt them down. To the contrary, Cyrus seems to have respected their motives, and was mostly annoyed that they left their families in his custody back in Anatolia. From there, the army marched across northern Syria, initially sticking to friendly territory full of villages and estates that were owned by Parasatis, supposedly a wedding gift from her father, Artaxerxes I. This was one of just several swaths of territory across the Western Empire that were controlled directly by the Queen Mother. Her servants and property managers ensured that Cyrus's army was well supplied, but shortly after exiting his mother's personal fiefdom, Cyrus began to encounter resistance. When he tried to stop over and take up residence in a palace built by Belesis, the recently deceased father of Abracomus, the small garrison and servants left in residence refused to let Cyrus in. Even if this were something on the scale of the Persepolis Palace Complex, which it almost certainly was not, taking a lightly manned palace was child's play for an army of 30,000. When they left, 
Cyrus had the garden ransacked and the building burned just to spite Abracomus. But by then, they were perilously close to the Euphrates, near the modern Turkish-Syrian border. And they reached the river when they encamped in a town called Thapsacos. Once there, Cyrus was forced to admit to what everyone had already assumed. He called up not just his primary generals, Clearchus and Ariaios, but also all of their commanders, and told them the goal now was to march straight for Babylon. They all agreed, long having assumed that this was the plan anyway, and went to tell their men. Perhaps spurred on by his lover, the Persian general Ariaios, Menon convinced the Thessalian mercenaries to back Cyrus unconditionally. The rest of the rank-and-file mercenaries were less pliable. They refused to go unless they all got bonuses equal to a royal donation received by a much smaller mercenary company that had traveled with Cyrus for the royal funeral several years earlier. The commanders took that demand to Cyrus, and Cyrus told them that they would receive their bonuses in Babylon just like his bodyguards did, probably thanking the Yazadas all the while that Babylon had a huge treasury and was still far away. Typically, the Euphrates could only be crossed by boat. It is a huge river, and in antiquity, it was almost always very deep. That's why Cyrus had taken his army to Thapsacos. It was a well-maintained Achaemenid way station, part of the royal road network that maintained a small fleet of ferries. Abracomus knew this, and had taken his army through the same crossing, then burned the ferries ahead of Cyrus's arrival. But unbeknownst to the satrap of Assyria, a drought in Cappadocia had left the Euphrates light on water. By the time Cyrus's army was in town, it was only a couple of feet deep and could be forded on foot. Once on the eastern side of the Euphrates, the army turned south, following the course of the river toward Babylon. As they progressed, Xenophon and the other Greeks marveled at the strange and alien landscape. Northern Iraq and Greece are very different places. Greece is a land of small creeks and rivers weaving between mountains and covered in vegetation. Upper Mesopotamia was dominated by a few gargantuan rivers flowing through open plains and desert filled with plants and animals that the Greeks had only ever heard of in stories. Xenophon even erroneously called this region Arabia because it looked like the stories he had heard about actual northern Arab land and just kind of assumed it was the same place. As they marched, they tried to resupply where supplies were available, but they were in the particularly desolate parts of what is now northwestern Iraq just as a drought hit and the Euphrates fell to historic lows. Animals in the baggage train were not used to the harsh conditions and started to die. The only produce available came from merchant caravans on routes stretching all the way back to Lydia, causing the price of grain to skyrocket beyond what the mercenaries could even afford on Cyrus's salary. They subsisted largely on wild game, forcing the soldiers to range far away from camp to hunt. 
At their slow pace, this occasionally forced all-day marches through the desert in the middle of August to reach the next source of fresh water. Tensions repeatedly flared inside of Cyrus's army and threatened to spark a minor civil war within the already brewing civil war. First, it was between the Greek and Anatolian contingents of the army. Then it was between Menon's Greeks and Clearchus's Greeks. Then between the Thracians and Greeks. Each time somebody in the command structure was able to reel things in, usually by pointing out that they were already way too deep in hostile territory to risk killing each other now. But the whole situation was treacherous. After 13 days of this, marching through the desert and drought-ridden lands of western Mesopotamia, a new development appeared that both strengthened the army's resolve and raised new concerns. The foul smell of horse manure left out in the desert sun must have hit the vanguard like a brick wall. They began to see the tracks and refuse of about 2,000 horsemen in the mud of the Euphrates riverbank and empty canals. Either it was Abracome's forces or some other pro-Artaxerxes army headed for Babylon just a few days ahead of Cyrus. At this point, one of Cyrus's entourage concocted a plan. This was Orontas, a royal cousin through some minor princess or cadet branch of the royal family in a previous generation. Apparently, he had sided with Tissaphernes back in 404 during the war over the Ionian cities, but came over to Cyrus's side at the end, or at least said he did. Orontes suggested that he could take a cavalry detachment away from the main army and ambush whoever was riding ahead of them before they could reach Babylon. Cyrus thought that was a sound plan and authorized the attack. But as soon as they were away from Cyrus's army, Orontes dispatched a messenger to Artaxerxes, planning to inform the king of Babylon that he was going to kill his younger brother. Unfortunately for Orontes, the messenger doubled back and took the message to Cyrus instead. Cyrus immediately sent another, larger cavalry force to bring Orontes back in chains. Once back in the camp, Cyrus summoned seven of his highest-ranking Persians to form a judiciary council in a loose imitation of the seven noble families originally instituted by Darius the Great. It was probably an attempt to carry out proper procedure and ceremony for prosecuting a member of the royal family, however distant. Clearchus was invited to join the council as one of the ranking generals in the army and ordered to bring 3,000 of his mercenaries to stand guard and dissuade anybody who might support Orontes over Cyrus. The formalities and show of force proved a bit overkill aside from the need for reputable witnesses. Cyrus repeatedly asked Orontes variations of, Have I ever done anything to harm you or offend you personally? And Orontes answered honestly. The answer was no. Cyrus motioned for execution, and all of the Persians present stood up to signal their approval. Orontes was marched off to one of Cyrus's chamberlains and then vanished, apparently executed quietly and disposed of rather than create a potential martyr. 
Ironically, in this whole debacle, the tracks and horse dung they saw must have turned east towards the Tigris, while Cyrus kept going south. Abracomus apparently decided to give up on traversing the depleted Euphrates and took his army to find fresh water and rest at the next river over because he fell more than five days' march behind Cyrus's forces. It was around this point that they were close enough to Babylon that new faces started trickling into Cyrus's camp. They were deserters from Artaxerxes' forces. Artaxerxes' hesitancy and Cyrus's boldness combined with all the rumors about Cyrus being a better leader, and people began switching sides. Nobody abandoned Cyrus, but several hundred seemed to have abandoned Artaxerxes. The most notable turncoat was Abarios, an elder noble who had a history of choosing the winning side in Achaemenid civil wars. He had been the cavalry commander under Sogdianus and switched sides to join Darius II back in 424. But someone ratted him out, and Artaxerxes revived the practice of burning someone in hot ashes just for Arbarios. Three days after Arontus' trial, Cyrus decided that they were too far south for Artaxerxes to ignore him any longer, and ordered his generals to get their troops prepared for battle. They put on their armor, strapped on their shields, got their weapons from the pack animals, and proceeded further along the Euphrates. But the battle didn't come. They marched in formation all of the next day until they reached the area north of modern Baghdad, where the two rivers of Mesopotamia started getting close enough together that canals connected the Tigris to the Euphrates, replenishing some of the latter's water supply. Xenophon also remarks that they passed the ruins of the Median Wall, the fortification built by the sons of Nebuchadnezzar 170 years earlier to defend Babylon from a potential Median invasion. But the battle still didn't come, because Artaxerxes really hoped that it would not come to that. The chosen king wanted to negotiate with his brother and avoid bloodshed. The only proactive defensive measure he had taken was digging a huge trench through the plains south of the Median Wall to hinder Cyrus's progress. And it did its job, but Cyrus's forces crossed it anyway. Cyrus had heard rumors that this was Artaxerxes' plan, but hadn't actually believed them. After the second day of marching in formation, the rebel king actually lost a bet with one of the oracles in camp, who had foretold that Artaxerxes wouldn't face Cyrus within the next ten days of his prophecy. Cyrus had to pay the man a thousand derricks, according to Xenophon. By the third morning of marching in full battle array, the army had gotten more relaxed. Cyrus himself was sitting down in a chariot, and the merchant caravans were starting to catch up to resupply the army. Cyrus was just getting ready to give the order to break formation and take the day off, when one of his scouts came tearing back through the army towards Cyrus. Artaxerxes was coming. Cyrus sat up and began shouting orders. Translators began rushing around and shouting things in Aramaic or Greek, and the army hastily got itself back into formation. They were just 50 miles, 80 kilometers north of Babylon, 
and the only landmark in sight was a tiny village called Kunaxa. But tiny or no, that is where King Cyrus III would face King Artaxerxes II and decide the fate of the Persian Empire. Until next time, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you can find stuff like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, including the likes of Cyrus and Artaxerxes, and the support page where you can find ways to financially support this project. Most importantly, that includes Patreon, and I want to remind everyone that the summer sticker giveaway is still going through September 21st. All new patrons will get a History of Persia cuneiform sticker as a free gift. You can also support the show for free by just leaving a review or telling your friends about how much you enjoy it. You can do that on social media by finding me at History of Persia on Twitter or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until then, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.